0: Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone.
1: In the Trial by Franz Kafka. Joseph Kay, the chief cashier at a bank, is arrested on his 30th birthday. He's arrested by unidentified agents from an unspecified agency for an unspecified crime. 1984 by George Orwell shows us a dystopia where the residents of what was formerly known as Great Britain are dictated to by a political regime known as English Socialism. The super-state of which this former Great Britain is a part is under the control of the privileged elite of the inner party. A party and government that persecutes individualism and independent thinking is thought crime. There are several other examples of this kind of story examining the relationship between the individual and the state with the state being this all-powerful all-controlling thing i'm no scholar of these stories but just as parts of the twilight zone have leaked out into the public consciousness and become part of our vocabulary so too have many of these especially 1984 by george orwell on the episode that we'll be discussing tonight rod sailing is clearly giving his take. The Twilight Zone is a group of stories in and of itself, but sometimes you can pluck out an episode and it will sit comfortably within a wider genre, independent of The Twilight Zone. At one end of the scale you have Night of the Meek, which could be put alongside the likes of Miracle on 34th Street or A Christmas Carol as a heartwarming Christmas tale. But at the other end of the scale there is the obsolete man that sits with Kafka's The Trial or Orwell's 1984. A genre of story that shows us a future that can be summed up with a single line from Orwell's tale. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping
0: on a human face forever. You walk into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. This is Mr. Romney Wordsworth in his last 48 hours on Earth. He's a citizen of the state but will soon have to be eliminated because he is built out of flesh and because he has a mind. Mr. Romney Wordsworth, who will draw his last breaths In the Twilight Zone.
1: First broadcast on the 2nd of June 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Elliot Silverstein. For the second episode on the run we have a new Twilight Zone director. Who also stuck around for a few episodes. Enter Elliot Silverstein after the obsolete man he would go on to direct the Passersby, the trade-ins and spare of the moments not a particularly prolific director he did a few episodes of the shows of the time like dr kildare and the naked city and he would go on to some movie success with the jane fonda movie cat baloo and the richard harris movie A Man Called Horse, and in his final directing credits, he returns to television with four episodes of the 90s TV show, Tales from the Crypt. Now we will return to his thoughts on this episode in particular later on, but in Stuart Stanyard's book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, Stanyard asks him, what made Twilight Zone different from other shows of the time? And he replies, the fact that two people who were supremely competent guided the material to the point where it went to the stage. And that was Rod Serling or one of his compatriots and Buck Houghton. Buck Houghton was a producer in the preferred sense of the word. That is, he knew what he knew and he assumed that you knew what he knew. And he didn't get his fingers into at least my pot. Buck was a first class producer. And I think that made so much of a difference. Directors could direct and not have to write or rewrite or reconceive or argue or beg or plead or do any of the things that directors had to do to get some kind of realisation of the vision of the material. So in our opening narration from Rod Serling... He has a very sober, almost warning tone to his voice. And while he often said that appearing on screen wasn't his favourite thing to do, and given the choice, he wouldn't have done it in the first place, he has a real ability to very slightly and subtly shift his delivery to fit the tone of the episode. It's quite obvious in a comedic episode because, you know, he'll crack a smile or deliver some dry wit. But what he does here is that bit more subtle almost like he is delivering us a warning. But I really like this opening narration, concisely written. He tells us that this is not a new world. It's an extension of what began in the old one. So it is a cautionary tale. Then he goes on to say that like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy. And truth is a menace. So during and after the narration we have quite a powerful opening I think. Burgess Meredith's character Romney Wordsworth enters this impossibly tall room with doors that stretch up out of view and in front of them is a long table at which a man sits and behind that a ridiculously tall podium on which the Chancellor stands. Then we have all these people stood to the side, Fritz Weaver stood on that podium, and the drums in the background as Romney Wordsworth walks in. And this is Burgess Meredith, you know, that sweet man we all love, walking in hesitantly. You know, what could he have done to deserve this? And Rod Sailing doesn't give us any comfort. He tells us that he's gonna die within 48 hours, there's no maybe about it. We're not spending 24 minutes of this episode watching him escape. There is no escape. How can you escape? Because the state is everything. He is gonna die. But before we continue with Romney Wordsworth's journey, let's take a step back and see where this all came from. As we've come to learn Rod Serling was a master at taking old unused ideas or maybe ideas that had not been used to their best potential and creating something new out of them. Now in this case The Obsolete Man came from two separate scripts. In the early 50s when he was writing for radio Rod Serling proposed an anthology series called it happens to you and from the sounds of it it's kind of like a proto twilight zone i don't actually think it got made i can't find it anyway so perhaps it did but i don't think it did because hopefully someone would have saved you know these early rod sailing stories and one of the episodes was called law nine concerning christmas and it was about a future society that passed a law which abolished Christmas, and also a law against Christ himself. There is a mayor in this episode who is very much like the chancellor in The obsolete Man, and he has an attitude of that the state doesn't recognize Uh, Christ or God so neither should the people in the village where the story takes place. Now the second source is actually a little more closely linked to The Twilight Zone because it was Rod Serling's original pilot script for the show and it was called The Happy Place and that concerned a future society where people who reached a certain age were considered to be obsolete, unnecessary for continued living and then they were executed. So I As you can see, with each iteration, it came closer to The Obsolete Man. Now, The Obsolete Man itself is essentially three long scenes. The first is here in this room. The second is in Romney Wordsworth's room. And the third back to this room again. So they are very long, dialogue-heavy scenes. That's pretty much all it is. But this is Rod Serling's bread and butter. He's writing about themes that he's very passionate about. And as we know, he was very political, and he was a great humanitarian who believed in the rights and the freedoms of individuals.
2: Wordsworth, Romney, field investigation, finding obsolescence. Do you know why you're here, Mr. Wordsworth? Yes, sir. I'd ask you to speak up a little if you will.
3: Yes, sir, I know why I'm here.
2: You've been under investigation, Mr. Wordsworth, for the mandatory period of one year and 11 months. You're found to be obsolete. The purpose of this hearing is to make a finding in the matter and make a sentence accordingly. Do you understand that?
3: Yes, I understand that.
2: Your occupation, Mr. Wordsworth?
3: A librarian's. A what?
2: A librarian, sir. Has this man had counsel?
0: Yes, sir, he has.
2: Are you sure he knows his rights? He's been given orientation, sir. Mr. Wordsworth, I'm told that you've had counsel. Stand back in the light, Mr. Wordsworth. I'm told you've had counsel and been given orientation, Mr. Wordsworth, but I'm still not sure in my own mind that you understand the purpose of this hearing. The field investigators in your sector have classified you as obsolete. This finding carries with it serious implications. Do you understand that, Mr. Wordsworth?
1: So, Romney Wordsworth is accused of being obsolete. The Chancellor explains it to a degree. He says that he's a librarian, but because there are no books, there's no need for librarians. So, from this, perhaps, we can glean that the state has outlawed books because books help people to share knowledge and ideas. And that's dangerous to an all-controlling state who exists to control everything keep the populace ignorant and they're easier to control so we never see what goes on beyond these couple of rooms that are in the episode but you can imagine that this state will probably control information that goes out to the people you know they will write all the news stories if the news doesn't fit with what they want the people to consume then they will create fake news that kind of thing it's all very Orwellian in that respect but also a recurring trope for this type of story is a vagueness about who the state are, who is truly in charge, and what is their overall purpose. The state is often quite faceless. And I mentioned earlier in that Kafka story, the trial, that the man is arrested by unidentified agents from an unspecified agency for an unspecified crime. In The Obsolete Man, the crime is obsolescence. Essentially, Romney's role has become redundant, and for this, he is the criminal. But Romney didn't change. It's the state that changed the boundaries. He's not a criminal, he's a threat. So we don't know much about this state, and it's this vagueness that allows them to shift those boundaries. Rewrite history into alternative history. Rewrite facts that will somehow hinder them and substitute them with alternative facts that will benefit them. It's political spin taken to the next level but we'll come back to that later as well.
2: Delusions, Mr Wordsworth! Delusions that you inject into your veins with printer's ink, the narcotics that you call literature, the bible, poetry, essays of all kinds, all of it, and opiates to make you think you have a strength when you have no strength at all. You have nothing but spindly limbs and a dream, and the state has no use for your kind
1: so before we leave this large room with the tall door and the podium that the chancellor stands at let's talk about the design why do they design it this way in the twilight zone companion Elliot silverstein says it was vaguely reminiscent of some of the german films of the 20s and there was a certain amount of expressionism in the style of the performances and sets so they go for these very long Narrow things, the table, the podium, the door, and Silverstein says that was very tough to do because a door that high had never been built in television before. It was 25 feet, an enormous high thing. I had done some work like that in the theatre before I came to Hollywood, so it was a very natural thing for me to just automatically adapt what I had already done and use it in this. German expressionism in itself is not linked to the Nazis. It existed before they took power. But due to the period that it began to evolve just before World War 1 and then beyond, there is an unfortunate connection there that is purely down to timing. So in a story like this, if you do use these anti-realistic elements of expressionism, It can be a kind of visual shorthand for reminding the audience of that regime. And I think that's definitely what they're doing here. Do I like it? I think it can be very striking and during the opening sequence I think that it is. It is a bit of a tightrope walk when you're kind of using this kind of thing because it can be deemed to be arty for arty's sake if you like. But I think it's okay here. But there's something later on that I'm not too sure about but we'll get there. So we have this exchange between the chancellor and Wordsworth. Then it's time for Wordsworth to face his judgment.
2: How do you find, ladies and gentlemen? Obsolete. 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 I concur.
0: Romney Wordsworth, step forward.
1: Once Wordsworth has chosen his method of execution, our second act begins. Certain things have happened since his judgement, he's in his room, someone has been to fit cameras in his room to film his execution, and he's already met with his assassin. Now the Chancellor turns up and as he walks in, Wordsworth turns the key that was already in the door, and then puts it in his pocket. A small detail that you might not even take note of on the first viewing, but of course it is so important. They don't draw attention to it. He just slips it in his pocket.
2: I'll tell you why I came, Mr. Wordsworth. Perhaps to prove something to you. And that is. To prove to you that the state
3: has no fears. None at all. No, you will forgive me, Chancellor, but that has all the elements of a joke. When I mean, you come to my room to prove that the state isn't afraid of me, oh, what an incredible burden I must be. To have to prove that the state isn't afraid of an obsolete librarian like myself. No, I'll tell you the reason you came. I'll tell you the reason, though you won't admit it to yourself. I don't fit your formulae. Somewhere along the line, there's been a deviation from the norm. Your state has everything categorized, indexed, tagged. You are the strength. People like me are the weakness. You control and order and dictate, and my kind merely follow and obey. But something's gone wrong, hasn't it? I don't fit, do
2: I? Yes, you fit, Mr. Wordsworth. In a few moments you'll be cringing and pleading just like they all do. Oh yes indeed, you fit.
1: It's interesting to see Fritz Weaver and Burgess Meredith back in the Twilight Zone again because last time we saw Fritz Weaver in Third From The Sun, he was very much playing the everyman. Well, he was an alien, but you see what I mean? Now Burgess Meredith in time enough at last and Mr. Dingle is strong was playing not so much bigger characters, but characters that I suppose were more performed, a bit more exaggerated, less naturalistic. And he's playing up elements of those character personalities. But this time round, they've switched places. It's Wordsworth who is more the everyman. And the chancellor talks with this very inflated, self-important tone. So this is Twilight Zone number three for Burgess Meredith. We've spoken before about he is Twilight's own royalty, his credits are numerous, but it almost wasn't him who took this role of Romney Wordsworth. It was originally cast as an actor called Joseph Schildkraut, and he was a Jewish man. But apparently it was the opinion of the director and Buck Houghton that it required an Anglo-Saxon man totally divorced from any suggestion of nationality. So sailing explained to Schildkraut it would be too much on the button to cast even an actor of your stature in a role that was such a fist in the eye so to speak. They were much more interested in casting away from the mould rather than towards it. So along with Burgess Meredith we have Fritz Weaver as the Chancellor. And we only lost Fritz Weaver last year at the age of 90 but he left us much loved, with a long body of work, not least two very highly regarded Twilight Zones. And he gave an excellent performance in Third from the Sun, and he shows us a different side to his talents here. Although he was an experienced stage actor here in the Twilight Zone, he's still relatively new to television and film. His first credit was in 1957, and he'd only done about 10 or so episodes on television before he landed in the Twilight Zone and Third From The Sun. Stuart Stanyard interviews Fritz Weaver in his book Dimensions Behind The Twilight Zone and it's one of my favourite interviews in there, I think it's wonderful. Of course I won't read it all out but it's tempting to because it's all such solid gold. Stanyard asks him, while filming The Obsolete Man, did you stop and think about how intense that story was? And Weaver replies, oh boy did I ever. It was like fascism in the highest degree. And we knew it. Of course we had a wonderful director, Elliot Silverstein, and he was a madman, but with crazy good ideas. And it was he who talked the MGM brass entertaining the whole studio into that vast room. You know, broke down all the sections and segments. It was like an airplane hanger. And he had these big ideas. It was sort of like El Greco paintings with towers that went straight up into the darkness there. And there was the leader and the long table down which he dragged the obsolete ones it was terrific Rod was having the time of his life that was my impression of him he felt like well I don't have to do all these important plays now I can just relax and have fun with this and he did he ran with it it's funny but I said we didn't know it was the golden age but we knew it was something unique. We knew this was unlike most series that you went out there for. And later I realized to my regret that most of the stuff is just cookie cut stuff, you know? No real imagination at work. Now we have discussed McCarthyism in the past. I believe it was in the episode, looking at the monsters or due on Maple Street. Fritz Weaver based his voice on the Army McCarthy hearings as he was delivering those lines.
2: Uh, May may I say that uh, Mr. Welch talks about this being cruel and reckless. He was just baiting, he has been baiting Mr. Cohen here for hours, requesting that Mr. Cohen, before sundown, get out of any department of the government anyone who is serving the Communist cause. Now, I just give this man's record, and I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member, as early as 1944.
0: Senator, I quote may like, we not drop this. Let's we know finish. he belonged to the Lawyers Guild. Let's and finish, Mr. Cole nods his head at me. I did you, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cole. No, sir. I meant to do you no personal injury. Well, and if I did, I, I beg me. your pardon let us not assassinate this lad further senator let's, let's you've done enough have hurt. you no sense of decency sir at long last have you left no sense of decency i know this hurts you mr welch i'll say it's it I same mr chairman senator, as a point of personal privilege senator, i'd like to
2: finish this senator i think it hurts you too I'd, sir i'd like to finish this
1: so fritz weaver does actually return to the twilight zone in future incarnations I really like seeing these two together verbally sparring in the scene you know weaver is bordering on being too big at times but I think the role does call for that a certain level of archness a certain level of performance now this regime in the obsolete man of course isn't concerned with looking like they care but they still do try to appear civilized They hide their witch-hunt of people, like Wordsworth, under the guise of law. Let's put the blame on those people that we no longer want around. Then we'll change the law so it appears that their execution is because of their own wrongdoing by creating this crime of being obsolete. Now there is a saying that those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it
3: you never learn do you history teaches you nothing on the contrary history teaches us a great deal
2: we had predecessors mr wordsworth who had the beginnings of the right idea
3: yes hitler hitler
2: of course stalin stalin too but their error was not one of excess it was simply not going far enough too many undesirables were left around and undesirables eventually form a core of resistance old people for example clutch at the past and won't accept the new the sick the maimed and the deformed they fasten onto the healthy body and damage it. So we eliminate them.
1: So this is powerful stuff, you know, the Chancellor speaks of eliminating the sick, the old, the maimed. And it's an interesting choice. You know, Sailing did say earlier when we discussed the casting of Burgess Meredith that he was steering this away from being about any one race. And I think too, because of the time, maybe if he had have gone down that road, perhaps network interference would have reared its head again. I mean, it's not nice to talk about eliminating the old and the sick, but we all have a stake in that, no matter what our race is. So in this state, everyone is a target. That speech that Fritz Weaver gave is actually quite similar to a speech in Orwell's 1984, and that goes, the party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We're not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, pure power. What pure power means you will understand presently. We are different from the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian Communists came close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps, even believed that they had seized power unwillingly and for an unlimited time, and that just around the corner, there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard the revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now you begin to understand me. So at this point in the episode, we know that Wordsworth has chosen his method of death, but we don't know what it is. Make it brief, Mr. Wordsworth.
3: You have plenty of time. You're not going anywhere. How's that? I'm afraid I haven't been very fair with you. I invited you here for a very special reason. Would you like to know the method that I've chosen for my liquidation? Well, in a very few moments, here in this room, a bomb is going off. Very thoughtful, Mr. Wordsworth. Relatively quick and painless death. Yes, isn't it? However, knowing that you're going to be blown to smithereens in a few moments... ...isn't the happiest thought in the world, is it? Is it? That depends on the individual, Mr. Wordsworth. Indeed, it does.
1: That depends on the individual. Wordsworth is essentially removing the chancellor from the state, making him an individual again. The state can't be judged but an individual can. And these two individuals are now going to be judged by the manner in which they approach their death. As Wordsworth waits for death, he chooses to read his favorite book, the Bible. So where does religion fit into all this? Well, i'm going to call on the assistance of douglas brodie in his book rod Sailing and the twilight zone he says sailing singular vision is enhanced when we learn that in addition to books religion has been banished wordsworth and the chancellor heatedly debate the value of reading but their voices never rise to a fever pitch until spirituality is brought up the chancellor paraphrases Karl marx all religious faith is but The opiate of the masses of all wordsworth books the bible remains his favorite this is hardly the position we expect from a hero created by a party-line liberal then again sailing reaches far beyond conventional politics progressive on social issues he expresses an abiding belief that we must continue to believe in something larger and greater out there beyond the realistic boundaries of time and space. were he alive today, Saling would despise the religious right with its implied condemnation of liberals as godless. On the other hand, he would be a founding father of the emergent religious left, which insists that true liberalism can only derive from a faith-based value system.
3: There is no God the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Out of the depths have I called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. and Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications.
2: Please, please,
3: if thou let me l- out
2: in the name shouldn't. of God, let me
3: out. Let me out! Let me out! Let me out! Yes, Chancellor, in the name of God, I will let you out.
1: So that's the trigger that Wordsworth needed to let the Chancellor out. His point is proven, the individual has triumphed over the state, and Wordsworth meets his fate with dignity. And I do like Burgess Meredith in that moment. Although he's done this thing, this defiant act, He still waits, and while he is dignified, he is still understandably apprehensive before the explosion takes him. It would be nice to think that Wordsworth's actions counted for something, planted some seeds within the populace, but as the state is wont to do, it's probably more likely that this will be erased out of history somehow. He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present, controls the past. So the Chancellor returns to the hall where he judged Wordsworth, and now he himself is judged to be obsolete. And then this happens.
2: Please, please, I'm not obsolete. I I, I have a function, I have a purpose, please, I, please, I I wanna serve the state, please, please, no. I'm, I'm not obsolete. No, no, I I please, please, I'm not I'm not obsolete. No. I want to serve the state.
1: Twilight's own companion, Silverstein, explains There was a key scene and a key moment in the expressionistic sequence when these two high vertical doors open and Fritz Weaver comes in to be addressed and judged and the place was ringed by automaton-like witnesses. Now it was reminiscent, of course, both in structure and in my view of it, of Franz Kafka's The Trial, vaguely reminiscent not in the story, but in the feeling. Some time before this, I had a nightmare that involved sound. A group of people standing and looking at someone and making this deep-throated sound. And it would grow stronger in intensity and move very slowly up the chromatic scale as it grew in intensity. But it had to grow in intensity first. I tried to reproduce that sound with this chorus, which surrounded Fritz Weaver. I wanted them to do absolutely nothing but stand there and start this deep throat growl until it reached a pitch of volume that required something else to happen like a cover on boiling water until the water boils high enough, the cover won't move so they started, making their voices get lower rather than higher as they went louder and they stared at him with a kind of insane fury then, when they could go no lower nor louder I had them start moving slowly forward and as they reached him they leapt on him like a pack of mad dogs and dragged him along the table the editor was working very well with me until we came to that moment he showed me this roughly assembled and he had them moving immediately as soon as they started to growl I said no 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 you don't understand you see in the master shot I have them standing there he said well so what I said well that's how I stage the scene I want them standing there until their voices reach a certain pitch. The master is a message to you and everyone else. He said, well I don't want to cut it that way. I remember that very clearly. I felt my temperature and my blood pressure go up. I said, you what? I don't want to cut it that way, it's ridiculous. I said, it's only ridiculous because you haven't done it before. I want it this way. And he said, I won't do it. I went to Buck Houghton who resolved it with a compromise, however it was a compromise. I never did what I wanted to do, which was to have everybody in the audience saying, why aren't they moving, why are they just doing this strange thing? And I wanted the sound of the voices on chorus to rise up until the hackles rose on the back of your neck. So the compromise was, I suppose, the best of what Buck Houghton could achieve in trying to be fair to an editor with whom he had to work again, And the director who was being very adamant i didn't forget that and i felt that therein lay a reason why so many shows that i'd seen on television had seemed stamped out there was no individual style so quite the controversy on set but what do i think of this scene i have to admit i'm not that keen on it i don't know whether it's because it's not how the director originally intended it to be but i think it's just more like some kind of Beatnik not quite as clever as it thinks it is thing, you know I'm not explaining that too well, but the use of expressionistic elements and the overall tone of the thing could by some be seen as Preachy or a bit arty and smug art for art's sake rather than actually being earned and I don't think the episode as a whole is that it justifies its use of these expressionistic elements, but it walks a line and this kinda pushes it over for me. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that Sailing is purposely throwing his hat into the ring with the likes of Kafka's The Trial or George Orwell's 1984. Stories where the state has such complete control and we're examining that relationship between the state and the individual. And those types of stories have been and still are analyzed on a very intellectual level, and you don't need to go far to find similar analysis of The Obsolete Man. Now I did kinda consider dipping into that, but ultimately I think I really needed to try and focus on what it said to me. What did I take from it? I don't have that academic knowledge of those texts to really draw from, although I have read 1984. But they do cast a long shadow, so even someone like me can still see their influence but i don't think i'm working on the same level as a lot of the usual commentators on stories like this it's just not my ballpark rod sailing was ahead of his time and what he was doing in the twilight zone was ahead of its time which is why so much of it still stands up today now i don't actually say that too often in the show because it would become very Repetitive, Probably as repetitive as me talking about the hard-working actors of the day. But I think it's a given, and whatever I will do, I hope that that runs through it. We all know this about him, but a quote in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic really kind of struck me as quite relevant at the moment. And Sailing says, There's a propensity in our country to polarise things in black and white concepts. A man is either this, or he is that. He's either a communist, or he's on our side. And I think the reverse is true amongst liberals. If a man happens to be militantly and vehemently anti-communist, this guy is suspect among the liberals. I've either got to climb into bed with the John Birch group, or I've got to move far over to a while left, where I don't want to sit either. It's kind of a dilemma of the, you might coin a phrase, conservative liberal i'd like to dramatize this problem so again i I think we hear a quote here that does seem quite prescient in these times because i do think that's where we are right now where the middle ground doesn't seem to exist anymore only the extremes now it would take a smarter person than me to explain why that is maybe social media has its part to play somewhat ironically Opening up dialogue with others is easier to do, now than it ever has been. Everyone can put their voice out there, but I find there is no dialogue, only people staunchly holding their position and digging their heels in. I used to go onto Twitter quite a lot when it first started, but now I barely do because even though I choose who I want to follow, the turmoil of what's going on at the moment just pours in and you only need to go down one of those threads and look at those conversations to see that it's just people attacking each other people who don't know each other but are on different sides of current events and what do you do when someone you don't know attacks you you become defensive of course you dig your heels in and that person becomes the very embodiment of the other side of your position obnoxious unshakable and wrong Why would you listen to someone like that? So all we're left with is a lot of people shouting, but nobody listening. But seeing as the show is clearly taking a position, there is of course gonna be people who oppose that position. Now apparently the feedback was four to five in favor, but one of the postcards the Sailing received said, we watched your pro commie program. Do you believe books can save us, and America, the super state, is to be mocked by the cheap likes of you and your rusky pals? You preach the commie line now, but when such patriotic societies as our John Burt Society are in power, you'll find out what obsolescence really is. Yours, a patriot. So despite being a little lukewarm on the end, and I do really like this episode, and I enjoy two of twilight zones best actors bouncing off each other reading sailing's words now mark zickery in the twilight zone companion says that sailing had stacked the deck too much that he was presenting things in such black and white terms that there was no controversy and that we as the audience could sit back in the knowledge that we would never be part of such a state. I disagree, you know, as Serling said, it's about extremes and it was clearly a very important episode to Serling and as if to illustrate that, he does his closing narration actually on screen but his originally scripted narration was actually a little longer and it went like this The Chancellor is only partly correct, he is obsolete, but so is the state So is the entity he worships, any system becomes obsolete when it stockpiles the wrong weapons, when it captures countries but not mines, when it enslaves people but convinces no one, when it puts on armor and calls it faith, when in the eyes of God it is naked of faith, it has no faith at all. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth of man, His dignity, his rights, they are obsolete. A case to be filed for M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. So that's fine, but I do think it benefits from being shorter and more direct. And when Sailing delivers it, it's a real knockout closing narration that clearly shows that he as this emissary from the Twilight Zone isn't neutral. He and the Twilight Zone Have a point of view.
0: The Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone.
1: So there we have it, The Obsolete Man, and it's the end of season two. Bit of a tricky episode, that one, I think. It, like I said in the uh, the review, it's sort of working at a level that I don't really work at myself. The analysis of, you know, the kind of 1984 political kind of stuff. It's not really my ballpark, but hopefully you enjoyed it anyway. So, I'll uh, I'll tell you what we've got planned for the next few episodes after we have a read of some listener emails in submitted for your approval. I've had an email from Chad and he says great job as usual with the TZ Podcast. I am almost caught up with the episodes, your show makes them all the more fascinating. A quick thought on Mr. Dingle the Strong. Overall I agree it's a bit of a turkey, however you pointed out that this episode didn't take itself too seriously, it was simply for entertainment. That observation along with the fact that Rod Sailing and the Twilight Zone book didn't ascribe any meaning to the show got me thinking. The meaning to be found, if any, is that Mr. Dingle failed to use his extraordinary powers in any substantive manner, and the two-headed alien took them away again. We are left with a cliffhanger as to whether he will use his extraordinary mental powers for greater good or similarly waste them, the indicators are that he will again waste them. I like to think that Sailing may have been making an ironic comment to the audience here, We, the audience, may not have extraordinary powers of strength and mind, but we do have powers of body and mind. Are we wasting them? Are we wasting them now to watch a turkey of an episode? Naturally, Sailing would not want to work himself out of a job and lambast his audience with an admonishment to give up his show and television and leisure generally. But I think a call to ask ourselves if we are using our capabilities in a meaningful way or wasting them may be a fair question posed here, not to Mr. Dingle but to us. It's sloppily done, as you point out as superhuman strength is a difficult thing to immediately put to humanitarian use, you would have to find a person trapped under a car in order to lift it etc. Anyway this seemed to be another angle on this odd little episode so I thought I would share it. Please keep up the good work, the good reviews are hard-earned and well deserved. And then he says PS we tend to agree on which episodes are the best with one notable exception. One for the angels, in my opinion, should be in the pantheon of great episodes. It is full of heart, empathy, and makes the case that even someone who feels their life has largely been a failure can be a success by sacrificing for others. A message sorely needed at all times, but especially today, when fear, bigotry, and selfishness seem to have mass appeal. In the time of making America hate again, this is an episode that is something important to say. Best wishes, Chad. Thank you, Chad. And you you say about, you know, that meaning you ascribe to Mr. Dingle the Strong. I think that's a very good point, actually. You know, are we using our own gifts, whether they be extraordinary or just ordinary or our abilities to, you know, their best use? And I think in all art, that is what the the artist kind of means for it to be and what the the viewer of it takes from it and that you know in their own way they're both equally as valid so good good points there chad and thanks for writing in i've had an email from john and he says hi tom my name is john and i recently discovered your podcast i'm a freelance artist in my spare time when i come home from work i will fix myself a drink sit back and listen to various podcasts while creating art late into the night I find your podcast particularly inspiring. Your presentation is impeccable. There is a lot of warmth and personality in your voice and the exhaustive research you put into each and every episode is greatly appreciated. Thank you, John. My first exposure to The Twilight Zone came when I was young and hooked on watching late night television. Local channels would air The Twilight Zone before showing old hammer horror films and the like. There seemed to be something strangely taboo about staying up past my bedtime with eyes glued to whatever wonders the tube had in store for me. Listening to your show, I am filled with the same sense of wonder that I had as a child. You have also inspired me to re-watch TZ episodes that I didn't care for. For example, the instalment for Mind Over Matter was sandwiched between two favourite episodes of mine. Yet Mind Over Matter was the show that I was curious about seeing again. While it has its flaws, Behrman's performance is enjoyable. I also found strong similarities With this and the Doctor Who episode, End of Time, where the Doctor's nemesis, the Master, recreates the population of Earth in his own image. This can't be a coincidence, good spot. I'm eager to hear your views on a view of my favourites that aren't highly regarded by others, such as the Arrival and the Fear, and to be honest, there are some fine folk horror moments in Come Wander With Me. Thank you for the entertainment. John Thanks very much for the kind words, John. And, you know, you, you make a, a very good point there. For me, sometimes it is more enjoyable to dig into those episodes that maybe aren't the top of the list for most people, you know, what hasn't been said about time enough at last or walking distance, that kind of thing. So it's somehow liberating, I find, to go to the episodes that maybe aren't the ones that people always talk about. So I suppose after 50 years, Every episode has had its fair share of analysis, but I think we're on the same page with that one. So thanks for writing in, John. Okay, the last email, I've had a message from Mike and he says, Tom, I was nine when the original series began airing in 1959 and I still get the chills remembering some of the episodes. Your podcast doesn't scare me as much, a bit older now, but your voice and pacing can often transport me back in time to when I remember watching some of the episodes and the commentary you provide is outstanding. One thing I did want to mention is that sometimes when you wonder about whether or not an episode was good or not, don't forget the time. I watched Sputnik fly overhead, used to crawl under my school desk to duck and cover, when the air raid siren went off every Tuesday, wondered what space flight would be like, when all we had to draw on was science fiction, worried about the Russian communists sending over. ICBMs to destroy our cities and make Catholics martyrs thanks to the nuns at school could walk around the corner to a neighborhood A-bomb shelter retailer, seriously and we'll never forget that the way to stop an alien from destroying earth was to shout "Klatu, Brada, Niktu The Day the Earth had Still was rerun in the afternoon kids tv with all the other insanely scary sci-fi flicks of the time when I was growing up It was a scary time to be a kid or an adult, so the teasing may seem dated by today's standards, but it really stood out and seemed very timely and of the moment to those of us who were there to see it, firsthand and in context. You're doing a phenomenal job and I wanted to thank you. And then he he goes on in a second message, Tom, I forgot to finish my thoughts the other day when I wrote to you about context, taking into consideration the time when the TZ was originally broadcast in 1959. As regards to whether or not TZ or Sailing were good at comedy, I think when you consider all the popular variety shows a Gary Moore Show, with their hokey skits and old vaudeville stage nightclub comic guests, the bar was pretty low, mind you. We all thought it was hysterical and entertaining. So when TZ did their comedy, it was engaging and entertaining too. In fact, the twists in the TZ episodes Some really edgy made it unique even the episodes with broad silly humor the bard were at least as good as what was on tv at the time and as regards the set staging and acting when you consider how new young tv was at the time the tz even at its worst was considered better than most of what was available anyway i am belaboring the point the context was and is critical and i respect the fact that often when you are critical you acknowledge that And no one even at the time considered every TZ episode iconic or breathtaking or totally unique. But for the most part, it was considered a cut above. Thanks again for the best TZ podcast out there. Please keep it going as long as possible by finding new ways of discussing the TZ, Mike. Well, thank you, Mike. You know, it's fascinating to hear from someone who did catch it on its first run and who can sort of speak about those memories and that context that you spoke of, I can't remember which episode it was. It might have been the season one wrap-up show that Luke did, that I was a guest on because he'd uh, taken over hosting duties at that time, where I said something along the lines of, I wonder, you know, we don't find these episodes very funny, but maybe that was just comedy at the time because for me, I think my watershed comedy moment was Monty Python, I wasn't old enough to have watched it when that phase came out, but I did catch it in reruns, and when I look back at the history of comedy, that seems to be where my comedy begins. You know, Monty Python and onwards, things before that, and I'm not saying exclusively, there might be something out there, but things before that tended to work a bit less for me. So it's good to hear from someone who saw them at the time and can say, um, you know, it's not that Sailing couldn't do comedy, it's that sailing was doing the comedy of that time and you know, like you said, that is very valid and uh, definitely worth remembering. But I think we are so far past that time now that I come to the Twilight Zone very much with an an attitude of this show is timeless. You know, it's very rare that I, I speak about things that are dated badly because I honestly believe that the 80s show is more dated than the 50s, 60s show because The 50s, 60s show has a very timeless quality about it that was rarely broken, you know, only very occasionally does something come up where I think that dates the show. So while you're right, you know, context is important, I think I come to the Twilight Zone with a view that Sailing was ahead of his time and the Twilight Zone was ahead of its time, not only ahead of its time, but timeless. So, there are going to be times when I am looking at it through a 2017 lens, and the comedy episodes do seem to be the ones that, that stand out most as not having aged well. And that's unfortunate, but you know, while it's not particularly a mission statement to say I'm examining whether it still holds up, I, I think in celebrating the Twilight Zone, I come to it with a a sort of predisposed notion that it does hold up and it is timeless and it is great so if something like the comedy doesn't work for me I don't tend to just put myself back in that time and say well it doesn't work for me now but I'm sure it was great in in 1960 you know it's it's not what I do I I am viewing it now through a, a 2017 lens but it is good to get that reminder from you that, that when it did come out, you know, it was a cut above and those things that maybe don't work as well for us now were still of sufficient or good quality at that time. So it's good to remember, but I don't think it's gonna be something that particularly figures in how I review it today. Because if I'm gonna give sailing credit for being ahead of his time, then I also need to say that other things don't work because they don't transcend the time that they're made in as well. But thanks for writing in, Mike. I really appreciate it. And like I said, it's really interesting to hear from someone who caught it the first time around. So if you want to get your thoughts onto the show, you can email me at tom at the Zone Podcast.com. and thetwilightzonepodcast.com is the new website for the Twilight Zone podcast. And that's where it's going to stay. We're going to have none of this switching websites anymore like I've done over the years. This is our new home and this is where we're going to stay. So now we have done season two. Who'd have thought we'd ever get here, but we are. And what's coming up next? Well, like I said last time, the next two episodes are going to be more discussions, if you will. The next one is a combination of four listeners who I spoke to and... I uh, asked them a few questions about season two, and it's nice to get varied opinions. I've always said that although I review these shows, I don't come to this saying my opinion is the only opinion or the best opinion. It's all of our shows, so I like to hear what other people think, and that's uh, that's what we're going to do. The next show is going to be a bit of a montage of those four people that I spoke to, and the show after that is going to be me and former Twilight Zone podcast host Luke sort of having that same discussion between ourselves. So I know that's two episodes sort of rounding off season two, but what it does, I could have put it in one bumper episode, but what it does, it buys me a bit of time to work on the two after that because episode 99 is going to be a special episode that I'm quite excited about called The Forgotten Twilight Zone. And then episode 100 is going to be a reading of a a story that a listener has sent in, in the vein of the Twilight Zone. So that's something that my judging panel and I are looking at at the moment. And once we've done that, then I will record that special episode. I'm not sure whether I'm gonna tell the the winner yet or just gonna read it out so they get a surprise, but we'll see, it might be two, it might be one. I will really see how that goes. So that's what we've got planned. And then in episode 101, we will start season three, that big slog at the beginning of a new Twilight Zone season. So before I go, I just want to quickly mention uh, sometime during the month of February, I guest on a podcast called Melodic Treks, and that's on the Trek FM podcasting network, hosted by a gentleman called Brandon Shamatala, and it's a sort of... Um, exploration of the music of star trek but he sometimes takes these little detours and we talk about jerry goldsmith and he was you know figured large in star trek but he also did a lot of music for the twilight zone so we talk about some of his twilight zone contributions but he goes easy on me because i'm not a music critic and it's more of a mix of the music and the episodes themselves so that's melodic treks over on the trek fm podcast network So that's enough from me. Next time round, we'll be doing the season two roundup show and I'll speak to you soon.